Section 3 of a collection of the facts and documents relative to the death of Major General Alexander Hamilton by William Coleman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2. The following extracts from the several daily papers will serve to show the strong impression which the death of General Hamilton made on the hearts of his fellow citizens, those who knew him best. The Evening Post. With emotions that we have not the hand to inscribe, have we to announce the death of Alexander Hamilton. He was cut off in the 48th year of his age, in the full vigor of his faculties, and in the midst of all his usefulness. We have not the firmness to depict this melancholy, heart-rendering event. Now, when death has extinguished all party animosity, the gloom that overspreads every countenance, the sympathy that pervades every bosom, bear irresistible testimony of the esteem and respect all maintained for him, of the love all bore him, and assure us that an impression has been made by his loss which no time can efface. It becomes us not to enter into particulars. We have no doubt that in compliance with the universal anxiety of our citizens, a statement will soon be exhibited to them containing all the circumstances necessary to enable them to form a just opinion of this tragic scene. In the meantime, we offer the following letter that we have received from the Reverend Bishop Moore. The testimony which this pious and venerable clergyman bears to the virtues of the deceased will, we are sure, not be lost on a discerning community. To the Editor of the Evening Post Thursday evening, July 12th. Mr. Coleman, the public mind being extremely agitated by the melancholy fate of that great man, Alexander Hamilton, I have thought it would be grateful to my fellow citizens, would provide against misrepresentation, and perhaps be conducive to the advancement of the cause of religion, were I to give a narrative of some facts which have fallen under my own observation during the time which elapsed between the fatal duel and his departure out of this world. Yesterday morning, immediately after he was brought from Hoboken to the house of Mr. Bayard at Greenwich, a message was sent informing me of the sad event, accompanied by a request from General Hamilton that I would come to him for the purpose of administering the Holy Communion. I went, but being desirous to afford time for a serious reflection, and conceiving that under existing circumstances it would be right and proper to avoid every appearance of precipitancy in performing one of the most solemn offices of our religion, I did not then comply with his desire. At one o'clock I was again called on to visit him. Upon my entering the room and approaching his bed, with the utmost calmness and composure he said, My dear sir, you perceive my unfortunate situation, and have no doubt been made acquainted with the circumstances which led to it. It is my desire to receive the communion at your hands. I hope you will not conceive that there is any impropriety in my request. He added, It has for some time past been the wish of my heart, and it was my intention to take an early opportunity of uniting myself to the church by the reception of that holy ordinance." I observed to him that he must be very sensible of the delicate and trying situation in which I was then placed, that however desirous I might be to afford consolation to a fellow mortal in distress, still it was my duty as a minister of the gospel to hold up the law of God as paramount to all other law, and that therefore, under the influence of such sentiments, I must unequivocally condemn the practice which had brought him to his present unhappy condition." 
he acknowledged the propriety of these sentiments and declared that he viewed the late transaction with sorrow and contrition. I then asked him, should it please God to restore you to health, sir? Will you never be again engaged in a similar transaction? And will you employ all your influence in society to discountenance this barbarous custom? His answer was, that, sir, is my deliberate intention. I proceeded to converse with him on the subject of his receiving the communion and told him that with respect to the qualifications of those who wished to become partakers of that holy ordinance, my inquiries could not be made in language more expressive than that which was used by our church. Do you sincerely repent of your sins past? Have you a lively faith in God's mercy through Christ with a thankful remembrance of the death of Christ? And are you disposed to live in love and charity with all men? He lifted up his hands and said, With the utmost sincerity of heart, I can answer those questions in the affirmative. I have no ill will against Colonel Burr. I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. I forgive all that happened. I then observed to him that the terrors of the divine law were to be announced to the obdurate and impenitent, but that the consolations of the gospel were to be offered to the humble and contrite heart, that I had no reason to doubt his sincerity and would proceed immediately to gratify his wishes. The communion was then administered, which he received with great devotion, and his heart afterwards appeared to be perfectly at rest. I saw him again this morning, when, with his last faltering words, he expressed a strong confidence in the mercy of God through the intercession of the Redeemer. I remained with him until two o'clock this afternoon, when death closed the awful scene. He expired without a struggle, and almost without a groan. By reflecting on this melancholy event, let the humble believer be encouraged ever to hold fast that precious faith which is the only source of true consolation in the last extremity of nature. Let the infidel be persuaded to abandon his opposition to that gospel which the strong, inquisitive, and comprehensive mind of a Hamilton embraced, in his last moments, as the truth from heaven. Let those who are disposed to justify the practice of dueling be induced, by this simple narrative, to view with abhorrence that custom which has occasioned an irreparable loss to a worthy and most afflicted family, which has deprived his friends of a beloved companion, his profession of one of its brightest ornaments, and his country of a great statesman and a real patriot. With great respect, I remain your friend and servant, Benjamin Moore. Though not in chronological order, yet here may be the most proper place for the Reverend Dr. Mason's letter as it relates to the same subject. To the Editor of the Evening Post Sir, Having read in the commercial advertiser of the 16th a very imperfect account of my conversation with General Hamilton the day previous to his decease, I judge it my duty to lay the following narrative before the public. On the morning of Wednesday, the 11th instant, shortly after the rumor of the general's injury had created an alarm in the city, a note from Dr. Post informed me that he was extremely ill at Mr. William Bayard's and expressed a particular desire to see me as soon as possible. I went immediately. Footnote. Perhaps it may not be amiss, in order that no misapprehension should be created by the letters themselves, which are not very explicit on that point, that Bishop Moore was first sent for, but left the house without complying at that time with General Hamilton's wish, that Dr. Mason was then sent for, who, as he says in his letter, told him he could not accede to his request, that the bishop was sent for a second time, who came and administered the sacrament as related by himself, 
This explanatory note is added because a misapprehension of facts gave rise at the time to some small altercation between anonymous writers in one of our daily prints. And footnote. The exchange of a melancholy salutation on entering the general's apartment was succeeded by a silence which he broke by saying that he had been anxious to see me and have the sacrament administered to him, and that this was still his wish. I replied that it gave me unutterable pain to receive from him any request to which I could not accede, that in the present instance a compliance was incompatible with all my obligations, as it is a principle in our churches never to administer the Lord's Supper privately to any person under any circumstances. He urged me no further. I then remarked to him that the Holy Communion is an exhibition and pledge of the mercies which the Son of God has purchased that the absence of the sign does not exclude from the mercies signified, which were accessible to him by faith in their gracious author. I am aware, said he, of that. It is only as a sign that I wanted it. A short pause ensued. I resumed the discourse by observing that I had nothing to address to him in his affliction, but that the same gospel of the grace of God, which it is my office to preach to the most obscure and illiterate, that in the sight of God all men are on a level, as all have sinned and come short of his glory, and that they must apply to him for pardon in life, as sinners, whose only refuge is in his grace reigning by righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. I perceive it to be so, said he. I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. I then adverted to the infinite merit of the Redeemer as the propitiation for sin, the sole ground of our acceptance with God, the sole channel of his favor to us, and cited the following passages of Scripture. There is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. He is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin. This last passage introduced the affair of the duel on which I reminded the general that he was not to be instructed as to its moral aspect, that the precious blood of Christ was as effectual and as necessary to wash away the transgression which had involved him in suffering as any other transgression, and that he must there and there alone seek peace for his conscience and a hope that should not make him ashamed." He assented with strong emotion to those representations and declared his abhorrence of the whole transaction. It was always, added he, against my principles. I used every expedient to avoid the interview, but I have found, for some time past, that my life must be exposed to that man. I went to the field determined not to take his life. He repeated his disavowal of all intention to hurt Mr. Burr, the anguish of his mind in recollecting what had passed, and his humble hope of forgiveness from his God. I recurred to the topic of the divine compassion, the freedom of pardon in the Redeemer Jesus to perishing sinners. That grace, my dear General, which brings salvation is rich. Rich. Yes, interrupted he, it is rich grace. And on that grace, continued I, a sinner has the highest encouragement to repose his confidence, because it is tendered to him upon the surest foundation the scripture testifying that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. Here the general, letting go my hand, which he had held from the moment I sat down at his bedside, clasped his hands together, and looking up towards heaven, said with emphasis, 
I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. He replaced his hand in mine and, appearing somewhat spent, closed his eyes. A little after, he fastened them on me, and I proceeded. The simple truths of the gospel, my dear sir, which require no abstruse investigation, but faith in the veracity of God who cannot lie, are best suited to your present condition, and they are full of consolation. I feel them to be so, replied he. I, then repeating these texts of scripture, it is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and of sinners the chief. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This, said he, is my support. Pray for me. Shall I pray with you? Yes. I prayed with him and heard him whisper as I went along, which I supposed to be his concurrence with the petitions. At the conclusion he said, Amen, God grant it. Being about to part with him, I told him I had one request to make. He asked what it was. I answered that whatever might be the issue of his affliction, he would give his testimony against the practice of dueling. I will, said he, I have done it. If that evidently anticipating the event, if that be the issue, you will find it in writing. If it please God that I recover, I shall do it in a manner which will effectually put me out of its reach in future. I mentioned once more the importance of renouncing every other dependence for the eternal world, but the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, with a particular reference to the catastrophe of the morning. The general was affected and said, Let us not pursue the subject any further. It agitates me. He laid his hands upon his breast with symptoms of uneasiness, which indicated an increased difficulty of speaking. I then took my leave. He pressed my hand affectionately and desired to see me again at a proper interval. As I was retiring, he lifted up his hands in the attitude of prayer and said feebly, God, be merciful too. His voice sunk so that I heard not the rest distinctly, but understood him to quote the words of the publican in the gospel and to end the sentence with, Me, a sinner. I saw him a second time on the morning of Thursday, but from his appearance and what I had heard, supposing that he could not speak without severe effort, I had no conversation with him. I prayed for a moment at his bedside, in company with his overwhelmed family and friends, and for the rest was one of the morning spectators of his composure and dignity in suffering. His mind remained in its former state, and he viewed with calmness his approaching disillusion. I left him between twelve and one, and at two, as the public know, he breathed his last. I am, sir, with much respect, your obedient servant, J.M. Mason, New York, July 18th, 1804. The Daily Advertiser It is with sentiments of the deepest regret that we announce to the public the decease of the great and estimable General Alexander Hamilton. No event since the death of the illustrious Washington has filled the public mind with more painful solicitude, or so much called forth the general sympathy and grief as the event we now record. The loss of a character, so much respected in his profession, so esteemed by the public, so beloved in the circles of private friendship and of domestic life, is beyond the power of expression, and the manner of his death. Alas, it can be remembered only with unmingled horror and regret." 
Vain were the attempt to give even a hasty sketch of the various unequaled merit of the illustrious deceased. The task will be executed by an abler hand. Suffice it, under the present impression of the public regret, to state that as a soldier, through the whole of our Revolutionary War, General Hamilton was eminently distinguished. He was one of the few select friends of the Commander-in-Chief, often tried and as often approved. His cool and active valor in storming the redoubt before Yorktown will never be forgotten. After such a splendid proof of bravery, was it necessary again to put it to the test in compliance with a false notion of honor? As a statesman, General Hamilton added still greater honor to his name. To him are we principally indebted for the national constitution and the system of laws under which we now live. It was his hand that traced the outlines of our most important municipal institutions. To him we owe the plans for the organization of our national treasury, the provisions for the payment of the public debt, for the establishment of the banks, of the mint, and the whole revenue system of our country. As a lawyer, he was unrivaled at the bar. His talents and eloquence gave him a decided ascendancy in his profession, which, however, was softened by the most unaffected modesty and the utmost courtesy and gentleness. As a man, no one was more highly esteemed for his perfect integrity, truth, candor, and public spirit than the unfortunate deceased. He enjoyed, and no man ever better deserved it, the unlimited confidence of his friends and fellow citizens. As a Christian, we are happy to add, he has not left the world to doubt of his faith and hope. In his last hours, he has put a seal on his character by declaring his firm belief in the merits and atonement of a Savior, by avowing his trust in redeeming grace, and by requesting and receiving, in attestation of his faith, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Hasty and imperfect as the foregoing outlines may be, they will recall to the public mind those impressions of exalted merit which we are sure will never be obliterated, will never cease to be cherished with a melancholy pleasure. The soldier, the statesman, the man of preeminent talents and worth is gone, but his virtues will be had in memory, will be admired and recorded, wherever there is a heart to feel or a tongue to repeat the eulogy due to departed worth. With the deeply afflicted consort and the orphan children of the deceased general, the public will sincerely sympathize. Their loss is incalculable. May heaven support them on this trying occasion. May they enjoy consolations from above, for the world can now have fewer for them. Consolations which are neither few nor small beyond the reach of accident and change. Same paper. The ceremonies of Saturday were conducted according to the published arrangements. The scene was indeed solemn and impressive. Every countenance evinced a sorrow to which only a loss of the first magnitude, an event of the most tragical nature, could give rise. Every mark of respect to which departed worth has a claim was paid with affectionate earnestness. Business was universally suspended, and the whole city crowded either to perform or to witness the funeral honors due to the illustrious deceased. About noon, the different bodies forming the procession having taken their respective places, the corpse was conducted from the house of John B. Church Esquire, and the whole began to move. The moment was deeply impressive. Everything conspired to solemnize the mind. The tolling of the deep-toned bells, the melting melody of the music, the slow and melancholy inspiring pace of the procession, the appearance of the sable coffin with its accompaniments, the sons of the deceased, still of tender age, clad in the vestments of woe, and shedding the tear of anguish over the fate of a beloved father. 
unhappy youths, who will now be the guide of your growing years, the guardian of your budding virtues. These, with the awe-striking report of the minute guns, to which every heart beat its sad response, rendered the whole a scene of solemn woe. Two hours elapsed before the procession reached the place of interment, owing to the slowness of the pace and the length of the route. Arrived at Trinity Church, the Honorable Governor Morris ascended a stage prepared for him and delivered to a deeply impressed audience an appropriate and pathetic address. He sketched the life, the talents, the virtues, the civil and military services of the deceased. He addressed himself particularly to the students of Columbia College, the gentlemen of the bar, the Cincinnati Society, and the military. He adverted to the deplorable cause of the disaster by stating that all were acquainted with it and that he could not then say a word on the sad subject. The orator having concluded, the body was then interred with the accustomed military honors. Thus has perished, by an untimely death, a patriot of exalted merit, a soldier, and a civilian of preeminent worth. Thus has America been bereft of her second Washington. The New York Gazette Last Saturday were interred with all possible respect the remains of General Alexander Hamilton, the enlightened statesman, the skillful lawyer, the eloquent orator, the disinterested patriot, and the honest man. Never was the sensibility of the citizens awakened to such a degree, and never did they witness so mournful a scene. It renewed their grief for the death of Washington to see his friend and counselor cut off in the highest vigor of his faculties and the United States deprived of their great earthly stay. Immediately after his decease, the bells announced that he was no more. On the morning of the day of his funeral, all the bells were muffled and tolled from six to seven o'clock. They began again at ten and continued until the procession reached the church. These ships in the harbor exhibited the usual tokens of mourning, and minute guns were fired from the forts and from American and foreign armed vessels. The bells again tolled from seven to eight in the evening. The procession, consisting of the military, the Cincinnati, the clergy of all denominations, the gentlemen of the bar and students at law, strangers, the different incorporate bodies, the several societies, together with the citizens, was very large. All vied with one another in testifying their sense of the worth of the illustrious man deceased and the irreparable loss which the country had sustained. The sides of the street were crowded and the windows were filled with spectators, and many climbed up into trees and got on the tops of houses. Not a smile was visible and hardly a whisper was to be heard, but tears were seen rolling down the cheeks of the affected multitude. When the front of the procession had advanced as far as Trinity Church, they halted, and an oration was delivered by Governor Morris from a stage which had been previously erected on the portico of the church. The notice given to the orator was so short, his own feelings and those of the audience so great, that he was able only to paint in an imperfect manner the character and services of the first and most beloved citizen. A little time hence, more justice can be done to his transcendent merits, and the future historian will seize them with eagerness to adorn his page. The general, during his short illness, spoke with the utmost abhorrence of the practice of dueling and has left his testimony against it. This is known to have been long his sentiment. He declared that he had no ill will against his antagonist and had determined to do him no harm, professed his firm belief of the Christian religion and his tender reliance on the mercy of Almighty God through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He devoutly received the Holy Sacrament at his own earnest request. The witness of a man of such extensive powers and information will outweigh that of an host of infidels. This completes his character and demonstrates that he was good as well as great. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of the war perished? As a man falleth before wicked men, so fallest thou. And all the people wept again over him. The American Citizen, Democratic General Hamilton's Funeral Footnote At present we shall say nothing of the cause or manner of his death. On these points we have much to lay before the public, but prudence dictates silence until we are furnished with correct information from authentic sources. The public have an indubitable right to be informed of the cause and manner of his lamented fate. This information is demanded by the feelings of our citizens, by a voice too powerful to be resisted. I trust it will not be long delayed. Every incident of this catastrophe is interesting. And footnote. On the Saturday last, the remains of this gentleman were interred, accompanied with military honors, in the family vault, Trinity Churchyard. Although the period which elapsed between his death and his funeral was but short, yet the lively recollection of his revolutionary services, his acknowledged superior genius, his transcendent talents, his private worth, his sterling integrity, and the amiable frankness of his heart, excited in our citizens an uncommon cordiality and vigor to testify their high sense of these virtues by every demonstration of respect. There was a very good general suspension of business, and the streets were uncommonly crowded with spectators. The scene was impressive, and what added unspeakably to its solemnity was the mournful group of tender boys, the sons, the once hopes and joys of the deceased, who with tears gushing from their eyes sat upon the stage at the feet of the orator, bewailing the loss of their parent. It was too much. The sternest powers, the bloodiest villain, could not resist the melting scene. I wish I could go on and describe the sensations I felt, and those which were manifest on every countenance. Same paper. General Hamilton's death. The editor, in all humility, asked the reader to accompany him through a brief review of the correspondence recently published in relation to the unhappy affair which terminated the existence of the illustrious deceased. He enters upon this unpleasant task the more readily and with the more zeal, since he views, and cannot but view, the death of General Hamilton as a national loss, and as the inevitable and deplorable effect of a long-meditated and predetermined system of hostility on the part of Mr. Burr and his confidential advisers. Lest, however, he may be misunderstood by some, and knowingly and injuriously misrepresented by others, he deems it fit to cause himself to be clearly and distinctly understood. This, perhaps, is an homage due to the honest errors of the less liberal part of the community. To a few of those with whom I think and act in whatever relates to the administration of the state and general governments, it may seem extraordinary that I, who while the general lived to give comfort to his family and splendor to his nation, was opposed to him on some political points, should, when laid in the cold and silent tomb, become a guardian of his fame, a vindicator of his wrongs. If in the Republican Party there is one man of this description, and I trust there is not, I would with diffidence beg him to reflect and to exercise, with becoming dignity and moderation, those intellectual powers which it hath pleased God to impart even to the humblest of his image. I ask only for the privilege of thinking and of expressing my thoughts with exemption from cruel and overbearing intolerance. 
A fixed determination, however, to enjoy the one will prompt me to a due resistance of the other. I must unthink what I have thought and unlearn what I know before I can act the part of a savage, and he deceives himself who concludes that in my editorial pursuits I will be guided by any opinions but my own. With conscious and, as I think, becoming pride, I utterly disclaim and renounce that illiberality which will not award to illustrious merit its just due. I have, and always had, an exalted opinion of the merits of the deceased, and with unaffected sincerity and deep regret, lament his loss. This opinion and this sentiment, however, will not be construed by the liberal and the enlightened into an approbation of the political maxims of this great statesman, nor into a dereliction of principles formerly maintained and still tenaciously adhered to. It is the high prerogative, the distinguishing power of the human mind, and most honorable to man, justly to discriminate in whatever relates to the fame of those preeminent citizens who give character and luster to a nation. Hamilton, I believe, entertained political opinions at variance with mine, and on which, manifested in many instances by the administration of Mr. Adams, and in one by that of General Washington, I cannot, without unpleasant sensations, reflect. From these, which while living I opposed, I still dissent. But alas, he is dead, and I cannot pursue him to the grave for opinions honestly entertained, calmly and dignifiedly asserted, luminously and instructively enforced, and conveyed to the public with all the elegance of a scholar, and enriched with all the erudition of a distinguished jurist. I leave it to presumptuous arrogance, to a species of party rancor which I disclaim, to take another course. So far I differed from General Hamilton in political opinion, but all difference is now at an end. Death has swallowed up in victory, cruel and fatal victory, the narrow isthmus that separated from this great luminary, those with whom I act. I know that ancient writers urge with force and propriety, and that modern politicians acknowledge, as with one accord, the necessity of frequently laying before the people, by way of admonition, and to put them on their guard, the vices of great men, even after death has destroyed the power of repetition. But were I asked whether General Hamilton had vices in the face of the world, in the presence of my God, I would answer no. Like all men, he sometimes erred, but I cannot admit that even his errors were those of the heart. He was human and therefore not perfect. But if we correctly judge of human perfection by purity of heart, by rectitude of intention, I hesitate not to say that in my opinion, General Hamilton was most perfect. His private virtues, his public services, his great abilities, involuntarily excite in me the warmest esteem for his memory. Of his private virtues, there is no difference of opinion. All men of all parties speak of them with rapture and acknowledge them with admiration. To these, vice pays voluntary homage. The plotting, mischievous citizen whose bloody hand, guided by cool malignancy, terminated his existence, will acknowledge them. In all the private relations of life, he was honest, faithful, generous, and humane. His heart was the seat of every manly virtue. No man ever impeached his integrity with any color of justice. In vain have party collisions and rancor ransacked public records and exhausted private inquisition for a blemish. The fatal catastrophe proves that, like Aristides, he chose to yield his life rather than his integrity. 
Such a man, whatever were his political opinions, irresistibly commands our esteem. His public services were many, splendid, and great. From these, nothing but deplorable infatuation, nothing but fiery zeal, unmixed with a ray of reflection, can withhold a lasting glow of admiration and gratitude. The friend of liberty, he who for a moment reflects that out of the revolutionary contest, that chaos of clashing elements, arose a world of freedom, cannot but venerate the memory of those who, as it were, created it. In this most glorious, most useful, most splendid of earthly scenes, Hamilton performed a conspicuous, shall I not say a disinterested, a patriotic part? Scarcely arrived at the gristle of manhood, glowing with patriotic fire, with military ardor, he joined the creative phalanx and signalized himself by constancy, by perseverance, by valor, and irradiated with the rays of his superior genius, all within the sphere of its presence. His revolutionary services entitle him to our affection and will endear his memory to all who are sincerely attached to our independence. His civil was more brilliant than his military career. His early efforts as a statesman excel in utility and luster his exertions in the field. Perhaps to him, more than to any other man, we are indebted for the excellent constitution under which we live. Whatever aberrations from Republican maxims, rigorous inquisition may have discovered in his efforts in the convention, I know not. But this I may predict, from what we do know, that his numerous essays under the title of Federalist, advocating the principles and enforcing the adoption of the Constitution, will immortalize his name and render him illustrious when every memento of the caviling whittlings of the day shall be swept from records of time and buried in everlasting forgetfulness. I think I am not incorrect when I say that these essays are the ablest political papers in the world. They are replete with lessons of wisdom, clothed in unusual elegance. They are the production of a mind naturally capacious and enriched with all the lore of learning. I read them with renewed pleasure and instruction. Amidst the afflictions of the relatives of the deceased, it cannot but be pleasing to witness statesmen and jurists resorting to this elementary work as an unerring standard by which to test and determine matters in controversy. The Mercantile Advisor The remains of the late General Hamilton were on Saturday afternoon deposited in the house appointed for all living. The mournful procession moved from his friend Mr. Church's in Robinson Street about 11 o'clock in the order directed by the Committee of Arrangements, and it was not until near two that the rear reached Trinity Church, so numerous were the citizens who joined in paying this last tribute to the memory of the illustrious dead. We never witnessed, in this country or in Europe, on any similar occasion, so general a sorrow, such a universal regret, or a ceremonial more awful and impressive. The arduous task of delivering an oration over the body of the deceased was committed to the splendid talents of Mr. Governor Morris, and he executed it in a manner highly honorable to his feelings. He sought not, in the course of it, to inflame those passions in the people which had already risen to no ordinary height, but touched lightly on the circumstance which produced the lamentable event, and dwelt with peculiar felicity on the public and private virtues, the uncommon talents, the great usefulness, the inflexible integrity, and the real patriotism of his departed friend, 
His discourse was necessarily short, for his sensibility sometimes almost deprived him of the power of utterance. The Commercial Advertiser Thus has the last kind office been performed by our bereaved, afflicted city to the remains of our country's brightest ornament. In the long train of mourners on this melancholy occasion, every countenance was covered with sadness, every heart oppressed with sorrow. Never, but at the loss of our beloved Washington, has the voice of mourning been so impressively heard, nor the grief of our citizens so universally and emphatically expressed. Well may our city and our country mourn. Hamilton, in the prime of life, and the vigor of talent and of usefulness, has been hurried to an untimely grave. He whose unequaled skill and undaunted courage at the siege of Yorktown gave victory to our arms and peace to our country, whose transcendent talents and unwearied efforts contributed essentially to the erection of our national fabric, who organized our financial system and established our public credit, who was the favorite counselor and friend of Washington, who invariably sacrificed private gain and personal honor at the shrine of public good, whose comprehensive, powerful, and intuitive mind formed the boast and glory of America. The illustrious, the eloquent Hamilton has fallen by the hand of a desperate and relentless foe. Who would believe, had not the fact evinced it, that the son of the venerable President Burr, that model of Christian patience, charity, and meekness, whose instruction and whose example equally tended to impress the utmost kindness and goodwill to all men, that the son of such a man, the second officer in the United States, should, in direct violation of the laws of heaven and of his own state, in violation of the most sacred principles of religion and morality, and after every means of reconciliation on the part of the unfortunate deceased that was consistent with honor, as we are informed, had been exhausted, should take a cool and deadly aim against the first citizen of our country, the father of a numerous family, the husband of a most affectionate wife, an ornament to his country and to human nature? Could nothing but his blood atone for a few hasty expressions, indiscreet as they regarded his personal safety, but honestly intended for the public good, and authorized by every just principle of an elective government? Could nothing allay the cool, persevering resentment of his antagonist, but the heart's blood of such a man? Well, he is gone gone with the tenderest esteem, the highest respect, the most affectionate tears that ever fell on the tomb of a public character. He has gone, we trust, to receive the rich reward of his labors of love, of the many and great exertions for his country's welfare, trusting in the merits of his Savior, penitent for his past sins, forgiving even the foe from whom he received his mortal wound. He has gone amidst the gush of sorrow from the eyes of the weeping thousands to receive that recompense of reward, which is the meed of the truly upright and benevolent. On this deeply affecting subject, much more could be said, but we pause. To those who know him not, no words can paint, and to those who knew him, no all words are faint. The following will show the impression made by the melancholy event in Philadelphia. Tribute of Respect the citizens of Philadelphia, Southwark, and the Northern Liberties assembled agreeably to public notice for the purpose of adopting proper measures for the expression of their grief at the untimely fate of their deceased fellow citizen, 
Major General Alexander Hamilton. Their admiration of his virtues and his talents, and their gratitude for the eminent services, which as a soldier and statesman he has rendered to his country. Resolve, that a national tribute of respect to the memory of departed heroes and statesmen not only excites an emulation of their glorious example, but constitutes the purest reward of their toils and their virtues, and that such a tribute is justly due to the memory of Alexander Hamilton. That, in imitation of the pious example of the deceased, in the closing scenes of his life, exhibiting an illustrious proof of the benign influence of the religion of our forefathers, the citizens in their respective places of worship on Sunday next will render their prayers of thanksgiving to God for his goodness in having blessed our nation with men of talents to discern and of virtue to pursue her safety, her honor, and her welfare, and especially for having, thus long, continued to us the eminently useful talents of the deceased. That the clergymen of the several denominations be requested to expatiate on the same day upon the irreligious and pernicious tendency of a custom, which has deprived our country of one of her best and most invaluable citizens, and has proved so fatally destructive to the happiness of his family. That arrangements be made for having the bells throughout the city muffled and tolled during the day, and that the merchants will direct the masters of their ships in the harbor to display their flags half-mast high. That, as a further demonstration of our grief for his loss and our respect and affection for his memory, such of the citizens as may, consistently with their peculiar religious principles, will wear black crepe round their left arm for thirty days. That a copy of the proceedings of this meeting be transmitted by the chairman to the mayor of the city of New York, and that the sincere and heartfelt condolence of the citizens of Philadelphia, Southwark, and the Northern Liberties be tendered to him and to his fellow citizens for the loss which the state of New York and the United States of America have sustained in the death of General Hamilton. That a committee be appointed to carry the foregoing resolutions into effect and to make such further arrangements relative thereto as may be suitable to the occasion, and that the following gentlemen compose the committee. John C. Stocker, Thomas Fitzsimmons, George Latimer, Elias Boudinot, Jacob Speary, John K. Kelmuth, Godfrey Haga, Joseph Marsh, Thomas Haskins, William Lewis, William Rawley, Manuel Iyer, and Joseph Grice. And that the proceedings of this meeting shall be subscribed by the chairman and secretary and published in all the papers of the city. Thomas Willing, Chairman, attest William Meredith, Secretary. At a meeting of the members of the Bar of the City of Philadelphia, held at the courthouse on Monday the 16th of July instant, the following resolutions were unanimously adopted. Resolved that uniting in the general grief for the death of Alexander Hamilton, we feel it our duty to testify our deep regret for his loss as a member of the profession to which he had returned after a series of public labors in which the eminence he attained was only surpassed by the variety of his excellence in which exalted genius, incessant industry, and disinterested patriotism enlightened and defended, enriched and dignified a nation which must ever feel for him the strongest obligations of gratitude, affection, and regret. 
In the general testimony of sorrow, we claim the right of adding our peculiar tribute and of deploring the loss which the science of jurisprudence, selected by him for concluding employment of his valuable life, has sustained by his untimely and unexpected end. Resolved that the members of the bar in the city of Philadelphia, in testimony of their sorrow for the death of Alexander Hamilton, counselor at law, will respectively wear black crepe on their hats for the space of 30 days. Jared Ingersoll, Chairman. Joseph Hopkinson, Secretary. End of Section 3.